Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. And we are actually making our way through the book of Hebrews. The whole passage, I think, uh, the whole, the, the main unit of thought is chapter 3, 1 to chapter 4, verse 13. That's the unit that we're going to look at the next several weeks. For this morning, I'm just going to read chapter 3, verse 1, and just preach chapter 3, verse 1. And then as we go throughout the sermon, we'll be looking at a lot of the verses in the rest of this section. So let me read Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, and then I will pray, and we'll get into God's Word. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Lord, as we come to your word, we pray for your grace to to see Jesus, to understand your word by your spirit, Lord, to be enabled to to apply it. And we pray that, as it says in Hebrews 4.12, that your word would be alive and active, judging the thoughts and intentions of our heart. We pray your word would work powerfully, Lord. This morning within us, we ask this for your glory. Amen. As I'm sure many of you are aware, last Sunday there was a NFL player, Buffalo Bills, that as he made a tackle, he stood up and apparently, even the NFL now has said this, he had a cardiac arrest and fell down and basically died and they brought him back to life. Now, this is not the first time there was that something like this has happened. There was a an NFL player that actually played for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers named Gaines Adams. Has anybody ever heard of Gaines Adams? <laughs> Never, I'm sure. But he was drafted, I believe, from Clemson, and he was a defensive lineman, and he was in really good shape. He wasn't a defensive lineman that was really, really, really large. <laughs> He was a defensive lineman that was very athletic, very much in shape. Maybe this was 20 years ago. He was traded to Chicago Bears after two years. And then on a Sunday afternoon, he actually had a heart attack and died. This is years and years ago. So here you have two men, one recently, one in the past. That if you look at them from the outside, you would say about both of them, that person is an athletic specimen exercises constantly, very careful on how they treat their body. Maybe at the, at least by observation, it appears to be at the, the apex of, of their health. And yet, they both had, for some reason, bad hearts. And I think this is a great illustration for our passage this morning. There can be people that profess to know Christ, and yet they have bad hearts. There can be people that call on the name of Jesus and come to church and even sing songs and participate in in ministries and even seem to have a zeal for Christ and a zeal to have knowledge of Christ, but yet inside of them, their heart may be unhealthy. That is, their spiritual heart with God and with Christ may not be well. 
And I think we can summarize our text with this sentence. Drifting away from Jesus Christ is a hard issue. Take care of your heart. Drifting away, basically and ultimately, from Jesus is a heart issue. So deal with your heart. Again, that is your spiritual heart. And Hebrews 3, 1 through 4, 13 gives preventive and therapeutic treatments to help your own heart. This passage will, will give treatments to help our, our hearts to stay soft and tender and fixed on Christ so we don't drift away. Now this morning, as we look at this passage, before we start looking at, at these treatments, and we're going to be here maybe four weeks, maybe longer, there'll be many different types of treatments that we see that this passage gives on how we can deal with our spiritual hearts so they don't drift away. We're going to look at two this morning. But before we do that, I want to frame this passage for you. And even if you have your notes and all, they're out now, I can give more next time. I want to give a little bit of, of framing so that we can understand this passage better. So first, A, in terms of framing. If you don't work on your own heart, you, you will drift away. If you don't work on your spiritual heart, then sooner or later, you're going to start coasting. And then after some time, you'll slowly begin to drift away till you get to a point where maybe you, you don't even know it. But now you're far away from God and you're far away from Christ in your heart. And if you drift away, as we see in chapter 2, the first four verses, if you drift away, you could be neglecting your salvation. Chapter 2, verse 3. Something very bad could happen. Drifting away can lead to destruction. And as I said, this, this passage, chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, 13, is going to deal with the heart and with different treatments. Not just one treatment, but different treatments. And you can think of it this way. If you have a cold or a flu, how do you treat it? Normally, a more healthy way to treat that flu is not just one treatment, but many different things. You know, Chicken soup. You, you wouldn't just, I hope, just... Just take echinacea. That's something I used to do many years ago. If I got a cold or a flu, I'll just do echinacea. That's all I'll do. Well, that's not bad. That's good, right? But there's also other things you can do when you have a cold or a flu than just take echinacea. If you have a car, how do you treat your car? How do you keep it healthy? Well, you have to put gas in there. If that's all you do to your car is just give it gas, what's going to happen to your car? Eventually, it's going to break down. This passage is not just going to give us one treatment method, method, but many treatment methods on how we deal our heart, how we deal with our hearts, how we shepherd our hearts. A, a second frame point to help us to understand this passage a little bit better is understanding this theme. 
we can only apply truly what we understand. The more that we understand something clearly, the more that we, that we can apply it. If we don't understand it, then our our application can be very shallow. So I want us to understand the the main theme. Though, of course, there are many themes. There is a main theme that's in this passage, and I've already stated it several times. I think it's this: drifting away from Christ is a hard issue. Take care of your heart. Now, the, the book of Hebrews will talk about many different things, but there is an overriding theme that because Jesus is superior, then don't drift away, but have faith in him and, and look at him from beginning to end, right? Chapter 2, verse 9 or 10 talks about, now we see Jesus here, consider Jesus. Chapter 12, Verses 2 and 3 is basically look at Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And chapter 11 is faith, 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 faith in Jesus. What I'd like us to do then, though, is look at this theme uh, that drifting away is a heart issue. So take care of your heart. I, I want to seek to just for a brief time show you that in, in this passage. So first, as we look at this, Note, first of all, the, the very first word of chapter 3 is therefore. That's a logical and theological connector word to the previous passage. What was the previous passage about? Well, the previous passage was about since Jesus is God, chapter 1, fully God, and since Jesus is fully man, don't neglect your salvation. Don't drift away because Jesus Christ has all the power that you need to live for him and also, he has all the compassion and understanding to, to love you, to treat you, and, and to keep you, to be your propitiation, to be your support, because he's fully human. Therefore, consider Jesus. It's summarizing what was just said and connecting it to now what's going to flow out of that. Even if you look at verse 6 of chapter 3, know what it says. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. That is, you, you have to go all the way. It's the perseverance of the saints. We're not saved because of my perseverance. You're not saved because of your perseverance. But if you are saved, you will persevere. And that's basically what verse 6 is talking about. And again, that's the theme of don't drift away. Even if you were to look as the Spirit of God quotes Psalm 95, it talks about going astray and hardening your heart. Verse 10, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. They shall not enter my rest. Chapter 3, verse 12, that falls away from the living God. Verse 14, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Throughout this passage, there is this, and throughout the book of Hebrews, go all the way, don't drift away, continue on in Christ. Keep going forward. Verse 11 of chapter 4, therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So we see that the Spirit of God, through the writer of this letter to this beloved congregation, is concerned that though they may have a name 
of God. And though they may call on the name of God, though on the outward they say they know Christ, there's at least some of them that are thinking about and being tempted about leaving Jesus. And part of the issue is, and the the core issue, is that their heart is not right with God. They have unbelief. And we'll see that also throughout this passage, that when he talks about that their hearts are hard, their hearts are, are not tender, a lot of this is because they're not believing in God and they're not believing in God's word. And that's why we have chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, which talks about God's word. You can see chapter 3, verse 19. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So their hearts, with their lips, they might praise God, but inwardly they had disbelief and lack of trust. The God they were singing about is not the God that they were really trusting. Not really. And that is reflected and exemplified by Israel, who was delivered by God in a miraculous way, and they praised him with their lips and gave him glory, but ultimately, several different times, they rejected him. Even after they were physically delivered and blessed by God and were called by God to be his own people. Verse 11 of chapter 3, they shall not enter my rest, because they went astray in their heart because they truly we're not truly taking refuge with belief in God. So I, I would say it this way is this passage talks about Moses. And you can see in verse 5 and 6, Christ is better than Moses. He's more glorious than Moses. And I was going to talk about Joshua in chapter 4 and talk about the Sabbath. And so these two chapters are basically saying that Jesus Christ is better than Moses. Jesus Christ is better than Joshua. Jesus Christ is better than the Sabbath. And that is good. That, that's right and a almost adequate way to describe the chapter. It, it is accurate, but we can say more and be even more precise. It's because, since Jesus is better than Moses, Joshua, and the Sabbath, then you need to take refuge in him and seek to have a tender heart and not a hard heart. That's really the the theme of this chapter. Now, the other day, I had a cyst on my back that had to be removed, and I had it removed, and a neighbor is a nurse, and so... I, I just wanted him to look at it, and he did. But when he came into the house, he was like, I have to take your blood pressure. I don't want my blood pressure taken. Yeah, that thing squeezes your arm. So he took my blood pressure. It was fine. No no issues. But I thought, you know, it, it was normal. But I thought I could even get it to be at a like a, an athletic level. If I was out on a sunny beach nice calm wind was blowing and if I just relaxed and just was calm have you ever done that when your blood's been taken and watch the number just go doom, 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 doom. yes yes look at that I have good blood pressure for me to determine my blood pressure what it normally is 
should I go to the beach and just lay down? I don't mean like on a cold day in Washington. I mean like on a Florida day, okay? And I'm just on the beach just, ah. Mark, my neighbor, can you come now and take my blood pressure? Is that how I take my blood pressure? No. Or at the same time, if I want to determine my, my present health by using a blood pressure mechanism, I, I wouldn't do it two years ago. If I want to know about my healthy blood pressure now, about my heart, let me look at what my blood pressure was to you. Maybe that can factor into a degree, but if I want to know how I'm presently doing, then I have to look at my current heart. Where am I currently at with Christ? Am I currently having faith in Christ and the crisis that I'm in? Because these believers, remember, they're being persecuted by Judaism. They're being persecuted by the Roman state. Even they were being persecuted by their family. Even their possessions were being stolen. And that's why, why we have Hebrews 11, live by faith, not by sight. In other words, it's not... How is my heart doing when everything's going right? And I can just praise God, praise God, praise God. He's blessed me with perfect health, perfect family. Everything's going right. God loves me because everything's going right in my life. Well, what if everything goes wrong in your life? Does God still love you? Do you still love God? Do you still have faith? Because that's what was happening to these believers. And so then for them, their family and their Jewish religion that they had come out of that was now corrupt, they were being told, see, Christ hasn't really helped you. You give up all for Christ. And now you actually, you have nothing. And life's going difficult. And so God, and so not all of them, but some of them were being tempted then to leave Christ, to desert him and to drift away, deserting Christ who saved them, or at least who they wanted salvation from. So this is the theme of this chapter. And the Spirit of God is seeking to shepherd this congregation and will give them many different treatments. And again, it's both preventative and therapeutic. That is, it can help your heart not to get hard. And if your heart is because of remaining sin, even a a true Christian's heart can at times become less soft, less tender. A way to help that is by also the therapeutic treatments of this passage. So whether it's to cure it or whether it's to keep it soft, by God's grace, if we can apply these biblical treatments, we'll believe and won't drift away. So number one, the first treatment. Take care of your heart by developing a biblical self-image. Take care of your heart by having a biblical view of yourself. How you view yourself will affect your heart. How you view yourself will affect your heart. We see this in verse 1, where it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. So functionally, first I want to talk about functionally these terms. Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. He says these descriptions before he gives the command, which is considered Jesus. But first he describes them. Holy brethren and partakers of a heavenly 
calling. These are adjectives, but even more, they're what's called in the Greek text, vocatives. It would be as if I pointed to my wife and said, Holy sister, partaker of a heavenly calling. If I pointed to one of you and said, Brother Tom, holy brother, partaker of a heavenly calling. So when I mention your name, that immediately gets your what? Attention. And that's how these vocatives are used. That's the way that the Greek text would use this particular grammar point is it's an emphatic way to make people look and and listen and sit up. He just said, I'm a holy brother. He just said, I'm a holy sister. I don't think he knows me very well. (laughs) I'm a partaker of a heavenly calling. I'm a plumber. I'm a street sweeper. Heavenly calling? It seems like my calling is to work in a warehouse driving around a forklift. That's what I did for a long time. What is our calling? What does it mean, holy brethren? Well, these are being used here to get their attention and to help them to realize really, really who they truly were. Now, theologically then, how do these work? Holy holy brethren. You might remember already that these believers have been called brethren. Brothers and sisters of who? Brothers and sisters of Jesus. I will proclaim, verse 12 of chapter 2, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. Verse 14, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood. Verse 11 of chapter 2, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. But now it kind of even goes to a higher rank and a higher degree. It's not only that Jesus is saying, you're my brothers and sisters, you're my sibling. He's saying, you're my holy siblings. You're my holy brothers you're my holy sisters. It's almost as if Jesus were here today and he was to walk among you. And he stopped and said to me, Tom, you are a holy brother. I'd be, what? I believe you because you're Jesus, but that's really hard to understand. It's amazing that this description is given to a church which is at least has some members, has some attendees that are struggling with their faith, some that may not even be saved at all. And yet Jesus, the Spirit of God, through this letter, is saying, holy brothers and sisters. It reminds me of First Corinthians, one of the most... Crazy, chaotic churches in the New Testament, I think we could say, would be 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 1, he calls them what? Chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, you can read it. I think at least three times he calls them saints. Probably the least people on earth that are a church that I would say would be saints would be the church of Corinth. (laughs) But he calls them saints. Now here, 
I think the reason why is because the Spirit of God is being tender, is, is being compassionate, is seeking to encourage them. And he's saying, you're saints. That's what the word holy means. Holy means set apart, special unto God. That's what saint means. Holy saints. Now, you're going to demonstrate that and prove that by continuing on in the faith. But based upon your profession of faith in Christ, by the grace of God, if you're really saved, you're a saint. You're a family of saints. That's what this text is saying. That is, God set his special grace and love on you, regenerated you, called you to himself, gave you the grace to repent, and now you're saved, and he's set his love on you in such a way that nothing can separate you from his love. You have his righteousness, you're justified, and you have the peace of God in your life. That's the idea of a holy brother. It's talking about positional holiness. God gives you the very righteousness of Christ. So when you go to heaven, you're you're not going to be more justified. You're as justified as you're ever going to be right now. You're set apart unto God where you have his righteousness. And God, the Father, through Christ, treats you as if you are perfectly righteous. Because you have the righteousness of Christ. All of that is part of this holified, a part of being a holy brother or sister. Positionally, God has set you apart. And then practically, throughout the course of this earth, he's going to work on your imperfections. So stop and think think about this for a moment. If you've said, Jesus saved me, you are a saint. And, And we've mentioned this before, but there are many people that are called saints that actually are not saints. And there are many people that are not thought of saints that actually are saints. Mother Teresa probably, probably, if she held on to Roman Catholic theology, is is not a saint. A saint isn't somebody that does great things. A, a saint is somebody that God has done a great thing for. That's a saint. And here to these believers and and Hebrews that are struggling, the first one of the first things he says. He says, Jesus is full of God. He's fully human. And he says, you're a holy You're a family of saints. And part of me would be, you know, if it was me, Lord, I think, first of all, I would kick them. That's why, you know, I would scold them. Be man, be woman of God. Run as fast as you can. Be disciplined. That's what I would do. And that probably wouldn't be the best tactic. First, the spirit of God is. You, you've confessed that Jesus is Lord. You're saying that you're trusting him. If that's true. Then you're a saint. God has set his special love and grace on you. You're especially part of his unique family. That's what the idea of holy is, really unique. Not unique like you have a weird cousin, Bob. Not, not in that sense, but unique in the sense that You are very special to God. So much so that he gave you his son and his son died to make propitiation for your sin. Verse 17. Well, if you're as old as me, you remember who said holy moly. Who said holy moly? You know who said? Robin all the time would say holy moly to Batman. Holy moly, Batman! 
all the time. Poor young children, you don't know about holy moly. <laughs> what? Whenever I see holy in the Bible, I think of holy moly. <laughs> I'm sorry. Holy moly. And I thought, well, in one sense, Robin would say that because he would be like, this is crazy. I can't believe this. This is astounding. Holy moly. So when you wake up tomorrow morning, husbands and wives and kids, I think maybe you should wake up and sit up in bed and go, holy moly. I'm a saint. What? Isn't that crazy? Tell your family, just rise up out of bed and say to your wife, wife say to your husband, holy moly, you're a saint. I can't believe that. If they and if you have confessed to Jesus Christ as Lord and you've placed your trust in him. Because it is crazy. Congratulations, you've reached sainthood. Not because you did something great, but because Jesus did something great for you. And that's wonderful. And so this is a self-image. Again, it doesn't make me be, it should not, prideful because of something I've done, but boastful in Christ for something he has done. My self-image is in him. Well, there's another description, and it's partakers of a heavenly calling. Partakers of a heavenly calling. You can see it there in the text. There's been much literature written on your callings, all kinds of books on on calling. And I've had people ask me all the time, Tom, do you think you're called to be a pastor? And I thought I was called to be a rock star, truly. I thought I was called to be an artist. I still wonder if those callings might, might work out in the providence of God one day. But I think I or we and Christianity can be, Tom, you're, you have a high calling. You, you went overseas as a missionary and a church planner. Started a seminary, a pastor here. That's a high calling. Or motherhood is a high calling. One of the highest. Fatherhood is a high calling. The jobs that you work are high callings. But I think in one sense, if, if we're not careful, we can kind of rank everything. Okay, this is the highest calling, and then I have a calling here, and she has a calling here, and this person, their calling is a little bit down here. The fact of the matter is that we all have an ultimate high calling, and that's glory. We all have a high calling, and that is glory. Glory as a place. You can look back at chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, Therefore, and as the Spirit of God is, is talking through his word to this congregation and talking to us, before you talk about how to treat your hard heart, one of the things that you must realize is that you are a saint. You have sainthood because of Christ. But your calling, no matter what occupation you have, no matter what status you are in life, no matter how your friends or family, the religion you came from, no matter how the state treats you, how your neighbors look at you, your calling is the highest calling you could ever possibly have, and it's glory. It's glorious. It's, it's awesomeness. This is basically the effectual call, right? Romans eight twenty eight, And God will cause all things to work together for good for those that are you know, called and for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. 
That's that effectual call. There are other places. I, I won't take the time to get into those other verses. There are other places in Romans where it talks about that calling. Uh, John 6, right? It's those that the Father draws that come to Christ. There is this general call that goes out through the preaching of his word, but through election and regeneration, God secures people and, and, and saves them so that they not only hear, but they repent and trust and have faith. And they're saved from sin. But this call from God that effectuates regeneration and actually saves us, it's not just that we're saved from hell. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, note, it doesn't say this, in other words. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a saved from hell calling. Now, there are other places in Scripture where it may talk that way. But it's not just what you were called from, it's what you are called to. You have a heavenly calling. I mean, think about it. You know, somebody says, so what, what's your calling? I've had people say, even when they didn't know what I was, in terms of a pastor or my occupation, what's your calling? Heavenly. What? I have a heavenly calling. That's what I've been called. I've been called to a glorious existence in a glorious place with a glorious person, Jesus, I'm going to be with glorified people, and I myself am going to be glorified. Right? Again, Revelation, back to chapter 22, I'm going to be looking at Jesus face to face, and I'm going to reign with him forever. And with all the believers, I'm going to be with them and with you, and we're all going to reign and work and worship him forever in a world of perfect love and glory. And that is my and your calling, truly. And what I mean when I say truly is, no matter what your occupation is here, it's going to last for how long? How long? Not very long. <laughs> it's going to be over. But forever and forever and forever and forever, your calling, that is your, your occupation, your work, the, the sum existence of your eternal life is going to be about being face-to-face with Christ you're going to be with your loved ones that have trusted Jesus, and that's going to be gloriously happy and loving without any sin forever and forever and forever and forever and forever. That's what this heavenly calling means. Therefore, since that's true about you, the one that made you a saint and the one that's called you to this kind of existence, why would you even remotely ever entertain drifting away and deserting Christ? That's not who you are. That would be ridiculous. That, that would be dumb. That would be unwise to even remotely entertain coasting for Christ. Because of how glorious he is and what he has done for us and what he will do for us as well. So speak the truth to your heart so you don't give in to discouragement. This is the first treatment. Develop a biblical self-image. By God's grace, I've achieved sainthood, not because of anything in me, but at all because of God and Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. And then also, second, my destination based upon the all-powerful God that became man, based upon Jesus, is infinitely glorious. The best yet to come is in heaven with Jesus. Now, there's a second treatment. 
that we're just going to start today, and then we'll look at it more next week. This second treatment is this, and we see this also in verse 1. The second treatment, the, the second point. Take care of your heart by right now thinking clearly about Jesus. The second treatment to take care of your heart is right now think clearly about Jesus. You can look at the passage. It says in verse 1, consider Jesus. Now we could say think clearly, think accurately, think diligently, think precisely. And so all that is is summed up, at least I am summing up by using this word clearly. But you can use, think diligently, purposefully, accurately. But I think clearly is a way to truly understand, a comprehensive way to understand what this passage is saying. Now, again, and we'll talk about it later, but this kind of consideration, this kind of thinking, it's not this obtuse, academic, diving down deep study into the person of Jesus, and you have 10 theological books out, and you're talking about the hypostatic union, and so that you you really understand now all these different theological elements. That's not what consider Jesus really means. It has to have belief with it. You can see in verse 12 of chapter 3, unbelieving heart. And even when chapter 3 ends, we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. It's not dry consideration. It's not just that you read marks on a page are little blinking dots on a screen, but rather that you truly and your heart of hearts are becoming more clear in your heart who Jesus really is himself, in himself, and then who he is for you. So it's very important that we think clearly about Jesus because that will help us to not drift away. I think this passage is basically saying to the Hebrews, the reason why you're entertaining drifting away from Christ is because you really are not clear about who really Christ is. Now, again, there's more to it than that, but the more clear you are as to who Christ is, the more that will help your heart to be soft. Again, there's more to that, and we'll talk about that. There's there's faith. But the more clear and our and our hearts and our minds and our wills that we are on who Jesus really is for me, that would be a great motivation to not drift away. And so let me detail this by giving just four brief points about this consider Jesus. And mainly this is about the word consider. Of course, consider Jesus. He's the object of our consideration. First, you can see in your notes, it's not optional. It's not optional. This is a command. Number one, as we talk about considering clearly Jesus, you don't have a choice. I don't have a choice. It says consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. It's unwise to not consider Jesus. And since it's a command, it's wicked if I don't consider Jesus. If I'm not 
diligently, accurately, clearly thinking about who Jesus is according to his word, then I'm disobeying God. This is a command. It's not optional. That is, this command isn't just for theologians. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for daddies or mommies. It's for everybody. Consider Jesus. Second, it's also urgent. That's why I said, right now, consider Jesus. Right now, think clearly about Jesus. It's urgent. This this word, consider this imperative, is what's called an aorist in the Greek Bible. And the aorist imperative can be used to denote urgency, to do something right now. For example, 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Preach the word. That's aorist. And what brings out the urgency is the tense of the verb, how it, the certain letters, how it looks like. But also the context, for example, in 2 Timothy 4, 2 is Jesus is Lord. He, he's king. You're going to stand before him. People are falling away from the faith. So you need to preach the word right now. Not, not next week, not next year. Right now, preach the word. It's very similar here. Right now, you need to consider Jesus because if you don't, you're going to fall away from the living God. And again, to use the same metaphor, you might go to the doctor for a checkup. Maybe you have some pain around here or something. And he says, you know, you have some heart problems. You need to take some correction. Otherwise, something bad could happen. I'll do it. But then what happens? Maybe you don't take the the treatment he suggests, and then you end up getting in a worse condition. It was pretty urgent that you do something for your medical condition. And I have a friend now, and they have nobody here. Their kidneys are working at 16%. They need to do something soon. Otherwise, they could could pass away. It's urgent that, that they do something. That's the... the tone, the, the, the passion of this consider Jesus. Not only that, but the, the verb itself, the imperative itself, it has a preposition on the front of it. So often in the Greek language of the Bible, if you have a word that has a preposition on the front of it, then especially if it's with an imperative, and that's an heiress, then it makes it very, very intense. And so that's The Spirit of God is basically saying right now something that you really, really need to do is to think clearly and accurately and diligently about who Jesus is. It's not optional. It's urgent. It's also personal. It's personal. This particular Greek word for consider, there are different words for consider in the Greek, and this particular one is for personal observation. You're learning something because you yourself see it, you observe it, you think about it, you internalize it, you mull over it in your mind, you turn it left, right, upside down, straight up, away. You look at it from many different angles. You draw implications from it. And this is true in the Word. Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11, talk about hiding the word in your heart. Colossians 3.16, you let the word of Christ dwell richly 
within you. There is this personalization that you have of truth. A personalization of truth, I don't mean you make it something it's not, but you take the truth and you own it and you make it your own. And it's the same thing with Christ. So as you study Christ in the Bible, it's done with humility and devotion and submission, seeking to understand who Jesus is. He's fully God. He's fully man. What does that mean? And what does that mean for me? It's implications and applications. And then fourth, it is to be clear. It is to be clear. Because when you look at already the therefore chapter 3, verse 1, clearly in chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, Jesus is God, fully God. And then chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, clearly he's fully man. Verse 17 of chapter 2, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things. And then the rest of the book of Hebrews is going to talk to us about Jesus and his high priesthood. The book of Hebrews is an explicit Christology. It's a wonderful book about the very person of Christ, his person and his work. It's actually very clear. And so I think it's a good way to describe this this word when it says consider Jesus. It's not Jesus wept. Okay, I consider Jesus. It's No, it's this humble, submissive, detailed, diligent, submissive, worshipful study where you want to learn Christ and learn from him. And as you do that, you worship him. It's that kind of consideration. But again, I, I would emphasize it's not necessarily going deep. I haven't gone to biblical college and seminary and read way too many books having way too many conversations, there are individuals that want to go deep. Have you ever had somebody come to you? And it's happened to me several times. Tom, I'd like to meet with you, and I want to go really deep. You want to go really deep. I, I, I want to really go really deep on eschatology. I want to go really deep on Christology. I, I, I really want to go real deep on the atonement. Well, you may have come to the wrong person. <laughs> Why don't we just look at the Bible? But I want to go really deep. And I understand. I, I, I think I understand what they're saying. But, but for some of them, for some of us, a priority is let's be clear. If we can be clear with the obvious things in Scripture, that is the priority and that is huge. And Scripture in the book of Deuteronomy, it says the secret things belong to God. You study the revealed things. In other words, the, the priority as we consider Jesus is not seeking to understand all the very minute details theologically, but what are the, the biblical revealed truths about who Jesus is. Those are the things that I need to understand about Jesus. He's prophet, he's priest, and king. He's, he's fully God, he's fully man. How can I understand him, not just things about him, but how can I understand him better?
though I have not done it. I, I've done it a little bit. My, my dad was a pilot, and so I used to read all about and his popular mechanics books about airplanes all the time. I, I, I wanted to be a pilot for a long time, and he studied all about the pedals and the gears and turning and flying, how, how you do, do, do all of that. I, I, I've read books and books and books and books. I can go deep into aviation. But if you put me in an airplane, I can't take the airplane off the ground. Because it doesn't really make sense to me. It's, it's not that clear to me. You know, I, I didn't read all those books in, avi- in, in aviation. I didn't read them to be clear. I just wanted to gain knowledge. And we can all do that. And that can be a temptation with theology, with sermons, with book reading. I'm going to gain knowledge, gain knowledge, gain knowledge. If only I could be clear with what I presently know, that would be amazing and and incredible. And that's what really this passage is saying, because even if you look at verse 1, it says the apostle and high priest of our confession, of our confession. That is that which we have publicly believed about Jesus and have even stated with our lips, those things are what I want to think clearly and accurately and diligently about. Think of Romans 10.9. If I confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, then I'll be saved. That's a confession. This is what this is saying. This confession is that those core central truths about who Jesus is. Do I know those clearly? Do I rehearse them to myself diligently? Well, what all those core things, and this won't take long at all. We're almost done. What well, it says right here, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Did you know that Jesus was an apostle? I'm not saying that. The text is saying that. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Think clearly and accurately, personally and diligently about Jesus. Okay, what do I think about? Well, there are these core beliefs that you've confessed to be true. And one of those is that he is the apostle. You have in the Greek text, and they brought it out perfectly here in English, the apostle and high priest, that article is covering both apostle and high priest here. He is, Jesus is the apostle, and he's the high priest of our confession. There is this par excellence, the, the, the number one usage of the article, and that, that's what it is here. And in terms of apostles, who was the best apostle? Paul, by far. No, not Paul. Peter, no. Jesus. Who was the best high priest? Jesus. Now, when it says apostle, that's a transliteration. The Greek word, here you can learn Greek. The Greek word basically here is apostolos. It's a transliteration. The translation would be the sent one. That's what apostle means, right? Jesus called his disciples, and then he sends them out to be apostles. But the very first sent one was who? Jesus. 
God the Father sent him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Even in Matthew chapter 1, verses 17 and following, Jesus, through his virgin birth, was Emmanuel, God with us. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 18 are detailing out the apostle. The, the, the first apostle and the greatest apostle was sent by God, was God himself, God the Son. Maybe a way to think of it is even this way. Who is the greatest missionary of all time? David Brainerd? Hutchin Taylor? Jim Elliott? Who is the greatest missionary of all time? Aaron Judson? William Carey? No, Jesus. Jesus. Jesus left a world of eternal glory and honor, came to his own undeserving people that he created him, that he created, they rejected him, they tortured him, they abused him, he never ever sinned, and then they executed him. And in the mystery of God, that was all part of his plan so he could pay the price of sin for all those that, that would trust him. No missionary has ever gone to the links that Jesus went to to save people. No one. That's the idea, the theology behind the apostle. And when it says high priest, a priest in the Old Testament, the high priest, he would represent all the people before God, and he would represent God before the people. He would offer a sacrifice once a year for the sins of all the people of Israel. Now, the book of Hebrews would detail out more and more and more and more clear how Jesus is our great high priest. He's already done that somewhat in chapter 2, and here he's summarizing, and we'll talk more about it later, so not too much right now, but Jesus is our great high priest. He is the mediator between God and man. So, the Savior... The line of God, the Lamb of God, the, the King of Kings, the one that is fully God and fully man, is the one that represents me to God the Father. And Hebrews 7.25 says, He lives to intercede for me. He lives to intercede for you. So the one that died on the cross to pay the price of your sin, that calls you his family, he's the one that represents you before God the Father. It's not your angel's that represent you, you know, your, quote, guardian angels. It's, it's not your pastors. It's not other priests. It's your great high priest, Jesus Christ, that 100% perfectly represents you before God the Father. Has Jesus ever slandered you? Have you slandered anybody ever? We have. Jesus never has said anything untrue about you, nor has he taken taken the opportunity to speak bad about you. He, he stands before God the Father, and apparently according to Zechariah, even corrects Satan and speaks truth about you according to Scripture about justification. This is how he's our great high priest. He's our best representative. You, you want a good representative, right? 
you know, in, in politics, oh, if in the state of Washington we had good representatives, then everything would be different. Maybe if we just had Republican representatives, everything would be different. What we really need is a perfect representative, and that's who? Jesus. And so the Spirit of God is saying this to these believers that are struggling with their faith, and some of them are thinking about bailing out and leaving Christ, deserting Christ. And so he's saying to them, think diligently and clearly and accurately that you have the best missionary ever that came to earth to seek and save you, and he accomplished that mission. And now he seeks to perfectly intercede with you every day, 24-7, before the Father. So why would you ever leave Christ? And all of us either have, God forbid, or or will be tempted at times of thinking of, it's not worth it. I'm tired of following Jesus. I'm tired of Christianity. I, I can't do this anymore. All that's happened in my life, the way that people have treated me, the way that God has treated me, my faith is so weak. I I can't do it anymore. And here, this text, the Spirit of God is saying to you and saying to me, think clearly about Jesus. He also was rejected and ridiculed and tortured and abused and died, but died and rose again. And now he lives to intercede for you every day, all day. And he has secured a glorious existence for you forever. And the faith that you need is just a simple belief that what Jesus says is true. Can you believe he's true? Can can you believe he's real? And then what he has said he has done and what he said he will do, he will do? If we have that kind of faith that God gives, then we take refuge in him. Drifting away from Christ, backsliding, can be caused by not knowing and treasuring who you are in Christ and really who Christ is for you. Answer these two questions. Who is Christ for you? And who are you in Christ? Who are you in Christ? And who is Christ for you? And the answers to these questions can really massage and treat your heart with such good care, it will help you not to drift away. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for both these tender and even the the tough words. Lord, give us a, a clear vision of who you are in your word, of who your son is, who Christ is in your word for us, that we may be comforted that Jesus is truly all we need. He is our great representative, and he is our great missionary, the apostle, the high priest, and you have made us saints and have guaranteed eternal glory for us with the most glorious one. Lord, thank you for these truths. May we consider them with faith and think about these things clearly, accurately, and diligently, Lord. Lord, we give you praise 
And we thank you. Amen.